Good morning again. Uh, according to an online poll conducted by NBC in 2015, uh, do you know what most people want at work more than a raise? What most people want in a spouse more than physical attraction or intellect? And what most people want in a neighborhood more than big houses? Kindness. In other words, most of the people polled would trade a raise for a kind boss, a super handsome or pretty spouse for a kind one, and they would trade a bigger home for kind neighbors. Somehow people instinctively know that there is a value to kindness that surpasses the, the artificial treasures of big houses and money and, and sex appeal. And, and yet at the very same time, I think most people and, and we also struggle to actually put our finger precisely on what kindness is and then to actually live it out. The, the scriptures, of course, speak of kindness as a supernatural quality, a supernatural quality birthed in us and sustained by the Holy Spirit. You know, of course, uh, the, one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness. When Paul is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians, he highlights his own trials and sufferings that he's endured for the sake of the gospel and the spiritual fruit that has been born in his life as a result of those sufferings among them, kindness. In effect, he is saying, his argument to the Corinthians is, uh, so you don't believe I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an apostle. Check this out. By God's grace, I'm kind. This is his argument. But what does kindness actually look and feel like? For many, kindness just boils down to, like, are we nice people? Niceness, right? Kindness and niceness become synonyms. But that doesn't quite capture it, does it? No, we, we look at passages like uh, Psalm 141 that tell us that sometimes receiving kindness is painful. The psalmist writes, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Uh, pastor and author Stephen Whitmer gives uh, this helpful definition of kindness. He says, kindness is a supernatural, generous orientation of our hearts towards other people, even when they don't deserve it and don't love us in return. Kindness is a supernaturally generous orientation of our hearts towards other people, even when they don't deserve it and don't love us in return. That's a really good way to think of God's kindness towards you. As image bearers of God, we are likewise called to walk and, and to talk and to speak and to act with kindness, just as our Heavenly Father is kind to us. So this morning, I just want to ask, like, how's that going? How's that going? 
As you evaluate your own life and your relationships, are your interactions marked by kindness? Are they marked by a supernaturally generous orientation of your heart towards others, even when they don't deserve it or love you in return? Are you kind to your spouse? Are you kind to your parents? Parents, are you kind to your children? I'm preaching this message to myself, by the way, in a lot of ways, as I do every Sunday, but this one in particular. Are you kind to your coworkers? Are you, are you kind to your boss, to your employees, to your siblings? If you're anything like me, you have lots of room to grow in this area of kindness. So how are we to grow? How does that change? How does that growth actually happen? Romans 2.4 tells us it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. In other words, it is precisely in setting our eyes upon the kindness of God towards us in Christ Jesus that our inconsiderate and mean and harsh and cowardly hearts are often are, are softened towards him in faith and so change. Uh, and that's what we want to do this morning, right? That's our, that's our aim this morning. We want to fix our gaze on God's kindness towards us, most supremely in Christ Jesus, so that we would turn to him again in faith and repentance and be changed. And, and what we find today in our passage is a beautiful portrait of the kindness of Jesus. That's sort of the, the banner flying over this passage is the kindness of Jesus. So you can turn with me now to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 31. And I'll read this passage for us, this story. Mark 7, starting in verse 31. It says, Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray for us for a moment. Our Father in heaven, you are abundantly kind to us. Even just this morning, we have known kindness upon kindness. Your goodness and your grace is over all that you have made. You have given us sleep, homes, families, this opportunity and privilege to gather now, food in our bellies, kindness upon kindness. And we have seen that kindness most supremely in Christ Jesus. And you are sending your, your only begotten son to live 
and to die and to rise again from the grave. And so we pray uh, that even as we have heard already that it's your kindness that leads us repentance, that you would give us a fresh understanding of your kindness towards us. Show us your kindness towards us in Christ. Not because we are worthy of your kindness, but because you are a God who is kind. Do it now for the sake of our joy in you and for your glory in this world and among your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this passage gives us just an absolutely stunning and beautiful portrait of the kindness of Jesus. And so what I want to do is sort of just spin the diamond of this passage and show you some different facets of Jesus' kindness, right? To just sort of meditate on and linger on the kindness of Jesus. And my prayer is that as we see him and as we see his kindness to us, that the Lord would, by his spirit, cause us to, to love him more such that we long to show him more, particularly as those who are marked by a supernatural, Christ-exalting, gospel-motivated, and selflessly generous kindness. So the first thing I want you to see about the kindness of Jesus is that Jesus' kindness is considerate. Jesus' kindness is considerate. In other words, Jesus' kindness is marked by a careful attention to the precise needs of others. In our passage, we see that the crowd brings to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. The passage doesn't tell us how long this man had suffered with his condition, but we can reasonably imagine that he had grown up with it because he has difficulty. It's, it's, it's very uh, problematic for him to speak. And I want you to try and imagine what it would be like to grow up deaf with a speech impediment. Uh, I, I play this game with my family every now and again called Would You Rather? This is an interesting thought experiment. I'm ac actually going to ask you which you would prefer. Uh, raise your hand. Uh, I'll, I'll do them separately. The question is, would you rather be blind or deaf? Raise your hand. You know, this, is, this is like a gut thing. Would you rather be, raise your hand if you would rather be blind. Raise your hand if you would rather be deaf. Yeah. Uh, blindness seems to us to be far more debilitating. And when you do a poll like that, the vast majority of people are going to choose deafness over blindness, as, as you've demonstrated. However, many psychologists argue that the far more debilitating and challenging condition is deafness. And, and the reason they argue is that while blindness seems more debilitating, with deafness, you have to deal with the frustrations of the condition itself, right? You can't hear. It's very challenging to speak. But your eyes are also open wide to the social stigma of it all, right? You're, you're very, very aware of the social stigma of being deaf. You, you, you see all the gawking stares, the condescending looks, the, the patronizing facial expressions. Even though your mental faculties are fully intact, you are painfully aware that most people, when they see you, perceive you to be stupid or mentally handicapped because you can't understand what they're saying and because you can't communicate effectively. And to make matters worse, 
Deafness is often accompanied by a speech impediment that makes the words that, that, that you utter sound more like undiscernible grunts. And everywhere you go, you, you are a spectacle. Pointed at, laughed at, an object of humiliation. Can you imagine, and again, remember, this is, this is a passage located in a particular time in history. Can you imagine being deaf with a speech impediment in the first century? There's no speech therapy. There's no hearing aids. There's no medical help. You're just sort of designated and labeled an outcast, a freak, without a a doubt your sense of self-worth is as low as it can get. And the passage tells us the crowd brings the man to Jesus, begging him to lay his hands on the man and heal him. Now, what's interesting is the scriptures don't really tell us their motivation. Why are they bringing this man? You might think that they're bringing this man motivated by a sense of love and care and compassion for him. Some commentators argue that. I I, I tend to think based on the next verse uh, that what they want is to see a miracle. That they're bringing this man, he's the one with a, a need, and so they're bringing this man to Jesus because they want to see a show. They want to see Jesus do one of his miracle tricks. Yet again, this man is going to be a spectacle for everyone else's entertainment, right? They're going to bring him forward, and he's going to be the object of a show. But but look what Jesus does. Look look how considerate he is. Remember, we're looking at the, the considerate kindness of Jesus. Look what he does in verse 33. It says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. I love the word of, I love the Bible because nothing in it, like God just doesn't waste words. There are these little phrases, you're just like, why is that in there? And here, Mark makes special mention to notice that Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately. Do you see, Jesus really sees this man, right? He sees all the struggle he sees all the pain, all the heartache of his life with this condition. He, he looks at him not just as another face in the crowd, not just as a problem to be solved, but as a person, right? as an individual. And so Jesus gently takes the man by the arm and leads him away from the crowd to a quiet, private place, away from all the chaos, the clamoring crowd, so he could look the man in the eyes. You see, this man had been a spectacle his entire life. But Jesus is unwilling to turn his healing into a show for the entertainment of the crowd. He's unwilling to allow him to be turned into a spectacle again. He knows the hurt of this man constantly being forced onto a stage to be stared at by those around him for their amusement. And so he takes him to a quiet place away from the stairs and the pointing fingers. And arguably, it makes more sense for Jesus to do this healing, to perform this healing in the midst of the crowd. Certainly, he would have gained more notoriety for himself, right? If everyone was there to watch and see. But Jesus is not immediately concerned about his notoriety. Jesus is immediately concerned about the man in front of him. Look what he does next, verse 33, and taking him Aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. 
and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. A lot of commentators on this passage point out that it looks like Jesus, it appears as if Jesus is engaging in some kind of healing protocol. Right? He's doing some healing rituals. It was not uncommon at this time for uh, Greek mystics who claimed to have healing powers to go through a series of rituals, including touching various parts of the body and saying various incantations and applying different bombs. But there, you, you need to understand, there are no healing rituals here for Jesus. Right? Jesus' word alone is sufficient to accomplish all his purposes. Remember, just a few chapters ago, Jesus has stilled the storm with just a word, peace be still. And even the story right before this, where he cast the demon out of the daughter, he doesn't even have to go to the daughter, right? He just says to the woman, your, your daughter, the, the, the demon has left her. That's all he does. There's no necessity for Jesus to touch this man, and yet he does. And so we're left with the question, why? Why all, why all the, the touching? It's pretty simple. Jesus is considerately and compassionately communicating with this man in a way that he can understand. He's considerately and compassionately communicating with this man in a way that he can understand. It is absolutely stunningly beautiful. You're probably asking yourself, what's with the spit, right? Jesus spits on his finger and touches the man's tongue. Now, spit was believed by many to have healing properties when applied to a particular body part. But it's important you understand that Jesus doesn't need to spit on his finger. There's no you know, healing magic particles in Jesus' spit or something. It's a way that Jesus is communicating with this man so that he understands, right? And all the touching, the taking him to a private place, putting his fingers in his ears, touching his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he's saying to the man, to the man in a manner that he can understand. He's saying to the man, you know, okay, let's come over here. You, you don't be afraid. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of your ears. I'm gonna take care of your speech. Let's look up to God together. He's communicating all that in a way that the man can understand. You see, do, do you see how? considerate the kindness of Jesus is. He, he knows exactly what this man needed. He knows exactly what this man needs. And, and, he, and look, brothers and sisters, he knows exactly what you need too. You know, I, I, as I was thinking about this particular point, I was just thinking about how um, this is a picture of our conversion, right? A lot of times you see Jesus opening the eyes of the blind and making the lame walk, and unstopping the ears of the deaf. deaf. And those are little physical pictures that point to a deeper spiritual reality. Uh, and that reality is the reality of conversion. And, and so I began to consider all the different ways God has worked in your lives to bring you to faith. Now look, it's the same gospel. It's the same faith. You all are trusting in the same Christ. And yet if we were to share in this moment, if we were able to all just go around and share the different ways that the Lord brought us to faith, they would be all completely different. Why is that? Because God knows exactly what you needed. 
to bring you to faith. He knew exactly the circumstances. He knew exactly the people that needed to be brought into your life. He knew exactly the the conditions. He ordained them from all eternity past. He knows exactly what you need. And even now, as you think about your sanctification, as you think about how you are being made holy and being brought from one degree of glory to the next, the Lord knows exactly what you need. He knows every circumstance that is needed to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. So so let me ask you this morning, as you think about your own kindness, is yours a considerate kindness, right? Is yours a kindness that is intentionally and deeply concerned about what others around you are going through? Do you carefully consider the needs of those around you? In other words, is the help that you offer helpful? You know what I mean? Is the help that you offer helpful? You know, it's a, it's a kindness, husbands, to bring your wife flowers. But sometimes the kindest thing you can do is stand in front of the sink and do some dishes. Right? I got an amen from, from the king corner. Sometimes the kindest thing you can do is not bring flowers, but fold some laundry, right? Does your, does your kindness consider the needs of others? Kids, I, I am sure that your parents love every art project you make. And yet sometimes the kindest thing you can do for your parents is to just clean your room without them asking you, right? So the question is, is your kindness a considerate kindness? Does it consider the needs of those around you? Is yours a considerate kindness or or is yours a selfish kindness that is really no kindness at all? A kindness that is really only after enhancing your own reputation? Or like Jesus, are you willing to leave the crowd to zero in on the needs of another? So Jesus' kindness is considerate. But I think this passage takes it one step further to show us that his kindness is also empathetic. Jesus' kindness is considerate, but it's also empathetic. Look again at verse 34. It says, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. I see the, uh, the, the empathy of Jesus in that sigh. Right, again, it's that idea, like Mark doesn't uh, just throw these things in there. There's, there. there's no wasted words. And Mark tells us that Jesus sighs. Why does Jesus sigh? I think that deep sigh, what the text will say is a, a groan, a deep groan in Jesus is communicating the empathy of Jesus. What is this groan all about? It's the inward groan of Jesus identifying with this man in his suffering, and perhaps even more broadly, the corruption and the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. It's a deep sigh of of experiencing and knowing the pain and suffering that this man is going through. Uh, A few weeks ago, Lindsay showed me a series of pictures uh, from this family who are building a house in Utah. And I, I, this guy is, I guess, like a stonemason by trade. And it's this magnificent home. 
and it's all custom mason work. It looks like a castle. Uh, all the window is um, like these custom iron windows and it's beautifully ornate and it's set in this picturesque landscape with mountains behind it. Um, and, you know, it's just multiple stories high and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's, it's beautiful. So she was showing me all these pictures and I'm just like, wow, man, this guy is, he's quite the craftsman. Then a few days ago, well, probably now a couple of weeks ago at this point, um, Lindsay says to me, remember that family in Utah that's building that, that big giant house with all the custom work? And I said, yeah. And she said, it burned down last night. Ashes. And my immediate response was just, ugh. Ugh. That's what I think Jesus grown is all about. Now, here's the thing, though. I'm not an architect. I've never built a house. And I've never experienced my house burning down. So mine, that, that guttural just like, ugh. That was, a, that was a sympathetic groan. That was me imagining what it must have been like to be that guy having put in months and months of work being nearly finished to completing this beautiful house and then having it reduced to nothing. And that's what produced in me the, oh my God, that's awful. I can't believe that. But Jesus' sigh isn't him imagining the sufferings of man, right? Jesus' sigh is one of empathy. It's the same kind of empathy that Jesus demonstrates when he weeps alongside Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. It's the same kind of empathy that Paul calls all believers to when he says we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see, that's a, that's a call to enter into. It's not a call to just observe. It is a call to enter into one another's joy and into one another's sorrow. And that's, what, that's exactly what Jesus does. Right? This man had experienced untold mocking and humiliation as a result of his condition. And Jesus' empathetic sigh points forward to his own mocking, to his own humiliation on the cross. Right? That Jesus looks up to heaven is a reminder to us that he was always in perfect, prayerful communion with his Father. He spoke to his father and his father spoke to him. But on the cross, he became as one who was deaf to the kind voice of his father. He was cut off and shut out. And just as the deaf man's words were ignored and met with cold silence, so Jesus' prayer in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. And his cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're both met with cold silence. You see, Jesus knew the cost of restoring man's condition and most ultimately the cost of paying for our sin. And it's out of that deep sense of pain and anguish and identifying with suffering, our suffering as a result of sin, that Jesus' sigh comes. And Jesus' kindness is empathetic. He's not the type of kindness that, that sees you down in a pit and, and genuinely feels bad for you 
and wishes you sincerely good luck. I hope it all works out. That's not the kindness of Jesus, right? When Christ sees you in a pit, he, he actually come down, comes down into the pit with you. He, he, he feels your pain and your hurt, and he feels your fear with you. And then he lifts you up out of it. Is that what your kindness looks like? It's easy to pray for people from a distance, right? To see them in their problems, to generally feel for them in a way, but, but then to kind of just wish them well, right? But Jesus' kindness and the kindness we are called to is the type that gets its hands dirty. You understand? A kindness that is willing to climb into the muck in the mire of other people's junk and allow ourselves to get near enough to actually feel and empathize with their pain and their hurt and their grief. So as you think about your kindness, is yours more a polite kindness that sort of just stays on the periphery? Or is yours an empathetic kindness that is willing to get involved in other people's sin and other people's problems? See, that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. It is to be so involved with one another that we, we intimately know one another's joys and one another's sorrows such that we can empathize with it. We can feel it. We feel it as our own. And look, remember the definition I gave you, right? Kindness is a supernatural, generous orientation of our hearts toward other people, even when they don't deserve it and don't love us in return. Understand, I'm not promising that this kind of kindness will be returned with love and appreciation. But Christ-like kindness isn't out for its own gain. It's, it's out for the good of another, no matter the cost. So we see that Jesus' kindness is considerate and that it's empathetic. And the last thing I want you to see here in this passage is that Jesus' kindness is strong. It's considerate, it's empathetic, and Jesus' kindness is strong. This is the glory of Jesus, isn't it? This is the, the, the beauty of Jesus Christ. We tend to associate kindness with weakness. But the exact opposite is true. And it's not as if Jesus vacillates between the two like some kind of switch that flips. It's not that Jesus is either being strong or that he's being kind, right? Jesus' kindness is strong, and Jesus' strength is kind. You see? His kindness is strong, and his strength is kind. But look again at verse 34. It says, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. I see Jesus' strength here in the phrase, his tongue was released. The, the, the most accurate or the most rigid way to translate that phrase is to say, the chains or the bonds of his tongue were broken. The picture is of Jesus powerfully breaking the chains that bound his tongue and kept him from being able to speak. You know, I think of like the, ch the chains that fall off Peter. Remember when Peter 
as sitting in prison. And then the angel of the Lord appears and the chains just fall off. It's just raw, immeasurable power. He, he, he utters a single word, ephatha, which Mark helpfully translates for us as be open. Uh, again, try and imagine being this man. Right, try and be this man. Imagine being this man for just a moment. Right, for most of you, your life, you've been completely deaf. You, you can hardly remember the sound of a bird chirping, the sound of running water, the, the hustle and bustle of a busy street. And, and then in an instant, right, can you picture that? N no sound coming in, just utter quiet, silence. And then in an instant, you hear with piercing clarity, Jesus' voice, Ephatha, be open. You'd be like those little kids that are deaf. Have you seen those videos on YouTube where they get the cochlear implants and in like an instant, they hear their parents' voice for the first time and you see this huge smile on their face. Like they get the, they are hearing noise for the first time. And it's the voice of their mom or the voice of their dad. I mean, what a rush it would be. Uh, what, what a rush it would feel like to, to, to just be the recipient of that sheer power. The one who, who uttered those words. But even this, as I said before, this is a physical picture of an even greater spiritual strength that Jesus wields. While this man was likely deaf from birth, our ears have been closed to hearing the voice of God in his word from birth because of our sinful nature. Like a belligerent child, in our sin, we have closed our own ears to hearing the voice of truth. And so our minds and our hearts have been corrupted with the voice of this world and the voice of our own sinful desire. And so we are unable to hear him. But, but you know, this very same word, Ephatha, be open. It's the same word Luke uses when Jesus meets his disciples after his resurrection. Luke 24, 44, he says, he's speaking with his disciples. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's the same word. The same command, be opened, that unstops this man's deaf ears is the same command whereby Jesus opens a mind and a heart that is cold and shut off to his voice, to the things of his word, to understand them and to see them as truth and to love them and to receive them, right? Apart from the strong kindness of Jesus, his disciples were clueless. But when he powerfully opened their minds, just as he powerfully opened the man's ears, they could see with clarity the truth of who Jesus was and is throughout the scriptures. You see, Jesus' kindness is not weak or passive, but it's a strong kindness that takes the necessary action to bring relief to the suffering and to heal the broken. It's that, it's that kindness that is unwilling to just sort of pass by someone in a pit, but who is able to strongly lift them up out of it. 
Is that what your kindness looks like? Is it one that takes the necessary action to help the needy? Or are you content to stand by and and hope someone else does something? When Jesus opened this man's ears, he, he heard for the first time the sound of a voice, but not the sound of just any voice. He was hearing the sound of the voice of the Messiah. There's actually, this is one of the coolest things about this passage. There's a word in this passage that appears only one other place in all the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. It's the word uh, that communicates and that identifies this man as one with a speech impediment. He's he's called uh, Magalalon. That's what this the, the communicates that this man has a speech impediment. And that Mark chooses this word is an unmistakable pointer to the prophetic promise of the coming of the, the Messiah in Isaiah 35. That's the only other place that this word appears. Listen to this passage, Isaiah 35, 4. It says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, with the judgment of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, that's Magalalon, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Only other place in scripture where that appears. Isaiah's prophecy anticipated a day when God himself would visit the earth. And in his visiting the earth, he would bring both salvation and judgment. And the sign of his coming, the sign of God coming to earth to bring both judgment and salvation was going to be the opening of blind eyes, the unstopping of deaf ears, the healing of the lame, and the tongues of the mute singing for joy. And here we see this very thing promised by God in the prophet Isaiah, a hundred of years prior, prior, Jesus with immeasurably strong kindness, healing people everywhere he goes. And specifically in this story, healing the tongue of this poor man so he could sing for joy. And yet what is noticeably absent from this story is God's judgment. Right? Isaiah promised that God would bring both salvation, deliverance, and judgment. And yet there's no judgment to be found here in this passage. All this man experiences is the the healing deliverance and restoration of Jesus. How is that? It's that Jesus is going to be the object of that judgment in a short while. Because the judgment that rightly belongs to Jesus was about to fall on him instead of them. And throughout this whole passage, the, the, the shadow of the cross has loomed over this story. In verse 31, we read that Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And again, that might seem like a, a throwaway detail, uh, but if you're an expert in, in Middle Eastern geography, which I am not, by the way, I just quote people that are smarter than me, uh, you'd realize that's a really long route to take. It, it would be like uh, traveling. One commentator said it this way. It would be like traveling from Washington, D.C. to Richmond, Virginia, 
by way of Philadelphia. This big, like, out-of-the-way route. Jesus takes this huge fishhook route, and the question is, why? And the reason is, most likely, he was trying to evade the Pharisees, who were looking to kill him. And that's my cue, I guess, to uh, wrap things up. Uh, so he takes this, this huge le- this, this hook route to avoid the Pharisees. Um, what, seems to, what seems to bring this shadow of the cross even into clearer definition is the fact that uh, Jesus zealously charges them to keep quiet in an effort to maintain a measure of hiddenness from the Pharisees. Nevertheless, the more Jesus charges them to remain silent, the more they proclaim his uh, work. And as readers who know the end of the story, we are left with the looming sense that Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion are drawing steadily closer. And so as we move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper, which hopefully we'll be able to do, Lord, We remember that Jesus' uh, kindness towards us culminated in his atoning death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. And, you know, as I consider the three facets of Jesus' kindness here, his, his consideration, his empathy, his strength, it occurred to me that, in essence, they communicate to us the gospel, right? Jesus considered us in our sin. He, he saw us in our depravity, in our spiritual bankruptcy. And he looked on us with kindness and love. He gave careful attention to what we needed. But he not only considered our need, he he empathized with our need. Right? He came into the world. He took on flesh. He was born into weakness. He lived as a man in a world cursed by sin. He experienced all the facets of our brokenness and corruption and yet was without sin. But he didn't come into this world to bring the judgment of God but to meet our need, our greatest need for the forgiveness of sin and to heal our spiritual blindness and deafness, right? He died on the cross as an object of God's judgment in our place, mocked, humiliated, cut off and abandoned in our place. And he rose from the grave as the conqueror over sin and death, also that we would know him as the Lord who delivered us by his strong hand. And though we should rightly be the objects of his judgment, all who come to Christ in faith now know only his considerate and empathetic and strong kindness. Think of Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, by his loving kindness, He has broken the chains that bound our tongues so that now we can sing for joy in praise of him and his mighty salvation, right? We can sing the words that we sang just before the sermon. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. 
we can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. So brothers and sisters, I urge you to trust him for his kindness this morning. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this time in your word. We thank you that you are abundantly kind. Uh, we pray that you would fix our gaze on your kindness towards us in Christ and so empower us by your spirit to live as those who are supernaturally generous towards others even when they uh, do not love us in return. Help us to image forth the kindness that we have received and so bring glory to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? All right. All right. All right. Uh, why, don't, why don't we, we'll try and take the Lord's Supper as, as quickly as we can. Uh, so if you haven't got an opportunity to get the uh, prepackaged cups in the back, uh, they're there if you need one. I didn't grab one. <laughs> uh, while Mark's doing that, as we come to the table together, uh, the bread and the cup that we hold speaks to us of a perfect salvation uh, secured for us by Christ. And you know, in the very last passage of that section, the people are proclaiming, he has done all things well. It, it, it sort of points us to uh, God's work in creation, right? When he gets done and uh, says that uh, all that he has made is very good. And uh, here we see the, the new creation work of Jesus, right? The salvation that he has worked for us is complete and lacking in nothing. Uh, so who should come uh, to the table this morning? Uh, Jesus' command is to his people. Uh, the Lord's Supper is the covenant meal of all those who have been redeemed by Jesus. So if you've been joined to Christ by faith this morning, if you've submitted to him in baptism, if you've submitted your, your profession of faith to a local body of believers in membership, uh, we invite you to take this morning. Uh, if that's not you, uh, we would ask you uh, to refrain. I know that's a little bit awkward now because maybe you've grabbed a cup and, and you haven't uh, done these things, either submitted to Christ uh, in baptism or, or joined to a church in membership, or maybe you're just investigating the claims of Christ. Um, but if that's you, uh, don't feel weird uh, to, to not uh, drink. If, if you have not done those things, we would actually consider it to be uh, a sign that you are taking God's word seriously, who warns us that to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to bring judgment upon ourselves, and we certainly don't want that. Uh, so let me just remind us at this point that uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Um, as you take and eat, uh, consider all of the, the, the ways that you have failed to exemplify this kind of kindness. And consider that Jesus has taken the burden of that sin completely on himself, right? So that he has worked a, a perfect salvation and the perfect forgiveness of sins. So brothers and sisters, uh, let's take and eat together in memory of the Lord's work. Take and eat.
In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So as you take this cup and drink, I want you to remember that it signifies the ratification of the new covenant, whereby we have the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts who enables us to live in such a way that bears witness to the goodness and the kindness of Jesus so that we have and can uh, uh, carry out the fruits of the Spirit, including uh, the kindness of Jesus. So let's take and drink together in memory of Jesus' death and resurrection and, and, and drink in, in hope. Let's drink together. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are a God who knows what we need. Now, we saw that even early, earlier in this passage, and you know that we need these tangible symbols to, to remind us that as sure as we hold these things in our hands, so sure did Christ die in our place for the forgiveness of sins. So we thank you that you have given us these tangible signs uh, to know uh, that you are a God who is for us and who uh, is kind towards us in Christ. Uh, bless us now as we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, to him who made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. To him be glory and honor and blessing now and forever. Go in his peace and in dryness, hopefully. And all God's people said, Amen.